0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we head to the Caribbean. We'll look at the issues ahead for Cuba and the U.S. after half a century of tension and race relations on the island of Hispaniola. But first, Sierra Hancock is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
1: Cuba and the United States officially restored normal diplomatic relations this week with the formal opening of the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C., U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry also hosted a delegation of Cuban diplomats at the State Department, the first such high-level meeting at the State Department in 57 years. Kerry underscored the historic nature of these ceremonies.
0: Of course, this milestone does not signify an end to differences that still separate our governments. But it does reflect the, the reality that the Cold War ended long ago.
1: The Obama administration also announced this week that it will soon issue a new formal plan to close the U.S. military prison camp at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. The Cuban government wants the U.S. to close the prison and turn over the naval base to Cuban control. The Obama administration will need the approval of the U.S. Congress before any changes can be made at Guantanamo. We'll have more on the historic changes in diplomatic relations between the two countries later on this program. (music) Businessman and U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump keeps pressing the issues of immigration, border security, and U.S. relations with Mexico, and his tactics seem to be working. Trump toured along the Mexican border in Laredo, Texas this week. The tour gave Trump a chance to repeat his insults regarding what he sees as a Mexican government strategy to ship criminals and undesirables northward. Trump also took a swipe at Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas who was also running for president. Trump said Perry had done a poor job fighting unauthorized immigration. Despite Trump's views, unauthorized immigration from Mexico continues to decline, with numbers at some of their lowest for the past 40 years. But Trump's rhetoric has vaulted him upward in the pack of presidential hopefuls. He is now in the top spot in some U.S. polls, surpassing frontrunner Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida. Archaeologists working in Guatemala say they found important new stone pieces that reveal how kings gained power in the ancient Mayan civilization. The pieces are 1,300 years old and include carvings with Maya glyphs and a picture of a dancing king. The researchers say these stone pieces reveal new secrets about how the Mayans selected new kings after their rulers died. The researchers made their discovery in May, but only just released the information this week. They found the important stonework at an ancient site in northern Guatemala, a place researchers uncovered less than 20 years ago. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock.
0: Thanks, Sierra. And now, more on the historic diplomatic moves between Cuba and the United States. U.S. Secretary of State Kerry will head to Havana next month to formally open the U.S. Embassy. But as we heard earlier, he knows much must be done as the countries still have major disagreements. We asked Bill Leogrand for his perspective. Leogrand is a professor at American University and the co-author of the award-winning book, Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana. We spoke with him via Skype from Washington, D.C.
2: Well, there's a long list of things that are left to do, and the diplomats on both sides have been clear from the beginning that this was really a two-stage process. Stage one was negotiating the reestablishment of full diplomatic relations, and uh, that happened on July 20. And then the second round, or second uh, big task, was to begin to work through all the different issues Uh, that have to be settled before the two countries can really talk about having fully normal relations. The most important issue, of course, is that the U.S. economic embargo against Cuba is still in place. And since it will take an act of Congress to change it, uh, I think we're going to be talking about that issue for a very long time. And there's another long list of issues. Um, that include a lot of things left over from the old policy of hostility towards Cuba that President Obama is moving away from. Things like USAID's uh, democracy promotion programs, the broadcasts by TV and Radio Martí, the U.S. occupation of Guantanamo Naval Station, and so on.
0: Well, let's start with the embargo, since that tends to be the biggest. Uh, I'm I'm guessing your prediction is, we're not going to see that embargo change until after the 2016 elections, or am I misreading what you're telling me?
2: No, I think you're exactly right. Uh, The Republicans have a narrative that Obama is weak on foreign policy, uh, and three uh, of the main presidential contenders on the Republican side, Senators Cruz and Rubio and Jeb Bush, uh, have all Taken up the Cuba issue as an example of Obama's weakness. So the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate are not going to allow any legislation to pass that makes Obama's Cuba policy look like a success. So I think the embargo is uh, in place until uh, after the next presidential election and a new Congress.
0: Is it possible for us to roll back even further if we have a conservative president that? comes into office after the 2016 elections. Senator Rubio has made a point of saying that that he will unplug all of this if he becomes president and that uh, among some crowds in Florida where his home state seems to be a very popular item. Um, Do you see the United States stepping backward if we have a conservative president? It's certainly
2: possible. Everything that President Obama has done he has done using his executive authorities, and so the next president could simply reverse every single bit of it uh, legally. But politically, I think that would be tougher. Uh, This move by President Obama to normalize relations with Cuba has been extraordinarily popular. Uh, In the United States, over 60 percent of the public is in favor. Even among Cuban Americans, 50 percent are in favor. Outside the United States, support is even broader. Uh, in Latin America, every single president endorsed this new policy. Uh, in Europe, the European Union has uh, said that it supports it and is willing to help uh, the United States with it, and even the Pope gave it his blessing. So there would be a huge diplomatic cost involved for the United States uh, if a new president were to simply reverse it.
0: I'm glad you brought up the Pope, and, and I want to talk about some of these other issues that you raised, But but you give us a chance to to have a chat about um, the Vatican's influence on this deal and also the Canadians' influence. Uh, Your book is all about back-channel diplomacy. What insights do you have about the back-channel diplomacy that the Canadians and the Vatican and, and Pope Francis added to this process of bringing Cuba and the United States together?
2: Well, my co-author and I, Peter Kornblew, have just finished uh, an epilogue to the book that's going to be in the paperback edition, coming out this fall, that goes through in some detail Obama's secret diplomacy. Uh, The Canadians provided a secure venue for the talks to go forward uh, confidentially so that it wouldn't leak out, but they didn't participate at all in the discussions. The Vatican, on the other hand, played a much more proactive role uh, when President Obama met with Pope Francis back in March of last year. Most of their conversation focused on Cuba, and the president asked the pope if if he would help in trying to reach an agreement with the Cubans. Uh, the pope then wrote letters to both President Obama and President Castro, urging them to compromise and find a way to, uh, toward reconciliation. And finally, the Vatican hosted uh, one of the major negotiating sessions in October of last year. In which the final details of the agreement were hammered out, and the Pope agreed to be the guarantor uh, that both sides would carry out their commitments. So the Vatican played a very important role.
0: Let me go back to the embargo because that is uh, the issue that I think is is the biggest issue of the three that you brought up. And um, I'm speaking to you from a from a state, Missouri, that that certainly has an agricultural interest in having that embargo come down. And and there are a lot of Uh, Democrats who are moderates and also Republicans who are somewhat moderate who would say that the agricultural gains of bringing Cuba in as a customer should outweigh the embargo. Uh, Are their voices not being heard in this particular debate? Well, you know,
2: I think the business community is becoming more and more active. Uh, Before this change in policy, uh, businesses were interested in Cuba, but they understood that they'd be you know, really sailing uh, against the tide if they uh, tried to push on it as long as the president of the United States was not willing to try to normalize the relationship. But now that Obama has called for the embargo to be repealed, U.S. businesses are much, much more interested now in trying to get a foothold in the Cuban market. Uh, And I think because a lot of those businesses are Republican and, and support Republicans for elected office. Uh, that there is a possibility that more moderate Republicans in the next Congress will be open to a discussion about changing the embargo.
0: You mentioned that three prominent Republicans who are running for president have made Cuba an issue. Uh, By the end of the summer, we're expecting some 17 Republicans to be running. Am am I to take it that Cuba isn't that big of an issue um, if only three are really talking about it? Well, except for Rand Paul,
2: none of the other uh, Republican candidates have endorsed uh, Obama's policy towards Cuba. But they haven't really made it a big issue in the way that uh, Cruz and Rubio and Bush have. I think that the reason that it's become an issue among the Republican presidential candidates is because of how important the Florida Republican primary is going to be. Uh, In particular, if Marco Rubio wants to win the nomination from Jeb Bush, he's going to have to beat him in the Florida primary. And I think Rubio's strategy is to be tougher on the Cuba issue than Bush is in order to try to win the most conservative element of the Cuban-American community. But when we get to the general election, Cuba is not going to be an issue. There are very few people in the United States who will pick their presidential uh, candidate based on their policy toward Cuba.
0: And and likewise, most people don't really know about the um, regime change policies that that many presidents have carried out. against Cuba as as part of our regular policy, and that brings me to the issues that you raised about um, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and its what are called democracy promotion programs in Cuba, and also TV and Radio Marti, which is an attempt to, to um, stream information into Cuba, um, um, I guess the U.S. propaganda view. I find it very interesting, um, as we're conducting this interview, the, the Cuban parliament has met and has allowed people to, to send Twitter messages out from that particular venue. So we're actually seeing the sort of domestic change and technology change in Cuba that some might argue makes TV and Radio Marti uh, obsolete. What are your thoughts about those particular programs?
2: Well, there's no question that there's a digital revolution underway in Cuba. Since Raul Castro legalized um, the private purchase of computers and cell phones, uh, both have just spread like wildfire across the island. Uh, Cuba has very low Internet connectivity But the government is committed to expanding it, and they've been making some pretty good progress in the last few months. Opening uh, some uh, Wi-Fi networks uh, in in some of the most popular areas of the city of Havana, um, opening internet cafes with prices that are much lower than they have been historically, and the very, very large percentage of Cubans, particularly young Cubans, now own cell phones. So uh, the digital revolution is well underway, and I do think it makes uh, something like TV and Radio Marti uh, increasingly irrelevant. The problem is not so much that uh, there's a Voice of America program uh, that broadcasts to Cuba. It's the, the way in which historically TV and Radio Marti have been captive of a more conservative element in the Cuban-American community, to the point where at times they've actually uh, uh, contradicted U.S. policy, uh, which is which is pretty strange, given that they're a, a, a U.S. government uh, stations. Uh, so I, I do think that those are going to be an issue going forward. The Cubans regard them as a violation of international protocols on international broadcasting. Uh, so I think, you know, we'll we'll see the Cubans put that issue on the table. So far, the Obama administration has not been willing to really have a discussion about those.
0: What haven't we covered that you think is important for us to discuss in this climate after both countries are now working with open embassies?
2: I think what we're going to see next is a progress on a whole series of Bilateral agreements between Cuba and the United States on issues of mutual interest—you uh, know—that's a sort of a, a different category than the issues where there's conflict and and different positions need to be negotiated through but there's a lot of issues on which we have common interest with the cubans and we could be cooperating a lot more than we have historically things like um, counter narcotics trafficking things like uh, coast guard uh, cooperation and search and rescue in the caribbean environmental protection particularly oil spill prevention and uh, mitigation in the Caribbean, Uh, international health issues. There's just a very, very wide range of things on which, uh, you you know, closer cooperation will serve the interests of both countries.
0: Thank you so much. Bill Leogrand, a professor at American University and the co-author of Back Channel to Cuba, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up race relations, immigration, and controversy, the simmering tensions in the Dominican Republic. Stay with us. This planet
1: we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund action kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-CALL-WWF.
0: Welcome back to Latin Pulse. The island of Hispaniola is often the island that the media forgot in the Caribbean. But tensions between the island's two countries, French Creole speaking Haiti and the Spanish speaking Dominican Republic, finally drew our attention, along with requests from our listeners to delve further into the issue. The Dominican Republic wants to deport hundreds of thousands of unauthorized immigrants from Haiti. Many of those people were actually born in the Dominican Republic to Haitian parents, but they're not recognized legally as Dominican citizens. This week, Haiti fired its ambassador to the Dominican Republic, saying he was not adequately defending Haitian views and culture. Although the Dominican Republic has threatened to begin mass forced deportations, International condemnation of the policy as racist has slowed implementation. However, hundreds have been forced across the border already. We turned to Tim Shank for his analysis. Shank recently returned from an extended trip to the Dominican Republic, and he's the co-author of an analysis of the situation posted on Telesur's website this week. Shank is with the Committee on U.S.-Latin American Relations at Cornell University. He joined us via Skype from Austin, Texas.
3: It's a really troubling situation, and I think it's, it hasn't come out of nowhere, to put it that way. The treatment of Haitians and Haitian workers in the Dominican Republic has been a, a really difficult issue for, for decades. There was a law passed last year called the Plan for Regularization of Foreigners, Law 16914 in the Dominican Republic, which kind of set a time period for people with improper documentation to regularize their status, as it's said in Spanish. So this came about sort of because of a law passed in 2013 known as La Sentencia, which applies to all people born to immigrants who arrived in the Dominican Republic after 1929. This law says that these people and their descendants would not be issued their Dominican national ID card and they would have a transitory status in the country until their case was further investigated. And so this has really scared a lot of people of, of um, Dominicans of Haitian descent, maybe people whose grandparents were brought over to the Dominican Republic through a contract to cut sugarcane, contract that was signed by the Dominican Dominican and Haitian governments, those that started in the 50s. Um, and ever since then, there's been sort of a a real back and forth of Haitian laborers who are brought over in times of real need for the for the country, mostly in agriculture and in construction industries, and then tried to be repatriated when the when the demand for labor isn't quite as high. Um, so June 17 was the official deadline for people to to submit their paperwork and apply for regular status in the Dominican Republic. And and there was a big fear that there was going to be a a massive deportation. People were talking about hundreds of thousands of people being deported and rounded up and picked up because of maybe Haitian-looking features or more African-looking features or darker skin. Uh, That hasn't happened as far as I am aware of. Uh, It seems to be a very slow bureaucracy, as in... Many other areas in the, in the DR, um, and I think in the international press and the U.S. press, I've I've seen some things that have been a little bit concerning to me about how this issue is being treated. And so I wanted to note a couple of things about that. I think a lot of people who are looking at the situation in the DR have a tendency to apply U.S. racial categories to the Dominican Republic and to Haiti. And there's some people who've been writing. You know, the Dominican is more racist than the U.S., and sort of with the implication that, you know, Dominicans are really backwards and racist and almost ridiculous in their understanding of of racial politics. But I actually think that this this reading of the situation really misses some, it misses the categories that people use. People don't understand themselves to be white or people of color in the same way that that people might hear in the U.S., um, and it also misses the complex relationships that exist between Dominicans, Dominican-Haitians, Haitians, Dominicans who born and raised in the DR who might have darker facial features or darker skin color. You know, So there's a whole bunch of complexity that I think is missed by some of these blankets statements about how racist the DR is or isn't. Um and there's also some some class components in it too. I mean nobody's talking about repatriating the the Tonton Macoutes or the uh the brutal police squads that were supporters of the Duvalier dictator regime in Haiti who a lot of them are now living very well in in some upscale neighborhoods in in Santo Domingo. Nobody's talking about repatriating them or sending them back to Haiti. So I think there's a real distinction to be made between the governments of both countries and and the people of both countries, I think. Whereas, critiques of the Dominican Republic are very valid in terms of the elite's history of manipulation of racial and national categories to divide people who basically have very similar material conditions of life. Um, I think that's a very valid critique. And at the same time, the Dominican people, I have found regular working people to be generous, committed. Uh, They have a long history, as we were talking about, of of resistance to injustice. And there's also been just really amazing examples of Dominican-Haitian collaboration throughout the years and throughout the centuries. In the 1990s, for example... There were a lot of people working across the border, Dominicans and Haitians, on what they were calling Revolución Insular, or working toward island-wide revolution. And they were doing a lot of organizing of workers on both sides of the border. I just, feel, I just feel like the a lot of the narratives that are coming out in the press about the repatriation, the deportations, all of that, I think a lot of these questions... Could be asked in a much more nuanced way.
0: Let's try for some nuance then, and, and go back to some of these issues of racism that have come up in the media. I'm I'm wondering about the Dominican Supreme Court and its decision regarding citizenship uh, of people who have Haitian backgrounds. That decision is is what's informing some of the current policies and this issue of human rights groups internationally criticizing that particular decision because they felt that it had racial undertones.
3: Absolutely. Well, I I definitely agree with the critique. I think it's unacceptable that, that a national constitution should be excluding part of the population of people that is born within their borders. Um, and to take it farther, I think any national government that tries to say who is and who should not receive the basic human rights of what it means to be human. I think that's deeply problematic as well and so I think that goes back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about maybe making a differentiation between what governments do and what regular people do or what what regular people's interests are in, this, in these questions. A lot of what has been coming through the Dominican media, and this has been a pattern ever since I've been living there and following it for the last 10 or 15 years, is the Dominican media, the, the number one advertiser and the number one financial sponsor of even the private Dominican media is the Dominican government. They, ran, they run many more advertisements than, than anybody else. It's not surprising to me that that what would come out on TV or the radio or in newspapers would be fairly close to a, a government party line on, on Dominican-Haitian issues.
0: Let me bring us back to the contemporary scene and, and the issue of the deportations. We have seen Haitians being deported during this particular time period, not the massive Uh, tens of thousands. Uh, Some have estimated as many as a half million unauthorized um, workers from Haiti are currently in the Dominican Republic. So we haven't seen those massive deportations, but we have seen people picked up by authorities and and sent back some who have lived in the Dominican Republic for some years.
3: Yeah, that's true. And I think that's part of a longer trajectory of the waxes and wanes of the Dominican labor market it's it's always been big business well I shouldn't say always but in the last several decades it's been big business for um, Dominican migration officials and Dominican business people and construction contractors for example to kind of pull that old trick of bringing Haitian workers over having them work for a period of time and then on payday kind of call the migration officials in and have them sent back. A lot of Haitians that I've, one Haitian the guy that I talked to who sold DVDs on the street a few years ago, he said, you know, I'm always here. If I'm not here, then I've been deported and I'll be back in three days. So look out for me, you know. And he had it very clear in his mind that he was going to have to pay off about a dozen different checkpoints of Dominican armed forces personnel who would do checkpoints all the way from the Haitian border uh, much into the Dominican interior and so there's also a lot of people who are are making money off of it I mean it's it's understood that if you are a Dominican you're part of the Dominican army or you're part of the National Guard and you get placed out on the border at the Javon or Jimani or El Espina one of these places it used to be a punishment but now it's a reward for something that you've done because it's understood that you'll be making quite a bit of money in bribes.
0: Thank you so much. Tim Shank, the coordinator of the Committee on U.S.-Latin American Relations at Cornell University, joining us on Latin Pulse today from Austin, Texas via Skype. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you very much, Rick.
0: We'll hear more from that interview with Tim Shank next week. This summer, Latin Pulse is available on a variety of new online platforms, including the new website Latin America Goes Global. You can find us there at Latin America Goes Global, all one word, .org. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at LatinPulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word at gmx. Com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv.org. And then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.